All right, so if you've been with us the last couple weeks, uh, actually over the last seven weeks, you're tired of watching that bumper video, and so am I. Uh, So this is the last time you're going to get to watch that one, uh, because this is the end of the series. We're wrapping up this series on the Ten Commandments, and uh, it's been a really good series, a really challenging series. Uh, This morning, I just want to jump right in. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and I want to recap a little bit of what we've done through the series, Uh, but I'm just going to jump right in here. I'm going to read a couple passages to you from Exodus chapter 20, and this is where God is... uh, giving uh, what we call the Ten Commandments to, to uh, Moses. And so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. If you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. We'll be in a bunch of different passages this morning. Uh, but here's where we're at. Exodus chapter 20, verses 15 through 17. So it's pretty simple. Verse 15 starts this way. You must not steal, depending on your translation. Uh, Maybe if you're reading the old King James, it's uh, thou shalt not steal. But in the NLT, it's you must not steal. Number nine, you must not testify falsely against your neighbor. And the 10th one, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to cover number 8 and number 10. We're going to cover stealing and coveting. They kind of go together. Typically, when we covet stuff, uh, that can lead to stealing. It's interesting that the the 10th one can lead to the 8th one. But if you're paying attention there, you know that we skipped over 9. We didn't cover it any of the weeks before, and we're not covering it this week. So what's the deal with that? Well, as Adam and I were putting this together, uh, we both looked at that one and felt like neither one of us could handle it, so we decided we'd just skip it. And since we get to put it together, we did that. That's a joke. You laugh. That's good. Uh, no, there's a... Uh, There is a series coming up at the end of December uh, called Honest to God, and we're going to be covering honesty. And so we thought it would be appropriate to put this one uh, in there in that sermon series. So that's coming up at the end of December. We thought it was pretty close to put them together, uh, so we figured we would just handle it in December rather than doing two messages on uh, lying and honesty at the same time or within a month of each other. So that's where it is. If you're interested uh, in that one, maybe that one's uh, pressing for you. Maybe that's an issue for you, or maybe it's an issue for your kids. You want to bring them back for that one. Uh, that's fine. That would be at the end of December. We'll cover that. So as we do this, I want to recap something for you. I want to recap kind of where, what we've done so far and this foundational work as we look at the Ten Commandments. Because this is so important that we grasp this and understand where God is coming from as we look at the Ten Commandments. Because so many of us look at the Ten Commandments and we look at them as a list of rules that God has given us to hinder life. And that is not at all what God did. God did not come and try to establish the relationship that he had with the nation of Israel through bringing the law. All right, we actually looked at this, I believe, a couple weeks back, but I want to look at it with you again because we often forget these things. But it's so important that we don't forget this one. And here's what it is this is God speaking here to, to Moses. He says that Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. That in and of itself, we could do a whole message on that. Just think about that for a second. Moses climbs the mountain to appear before God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob, the nation of Israel. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. For all the peoples belong to me. 
And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Now, there's a lot we could cover, cover there. But what I want to focus in on is that God establishes his relationship with the nation of Israel first. Before he gives them the law, he establishes the relationships. Look at what he says here. He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Who were the Egyptians? If you know uh, Old Testament history, if you remember that, the Egyptians were the ones who oppressed and held the Israelites in slavery. And God comes along and he pulls them out. He says, you know what I did to the Egyptians. You remember what happened on the Re- at the Red Sea. You remember how I crushed your oppressors. God, as a loving father, steps in. He rescues the nation of Israel. He says, you know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to where? Myself. I rescued you out of the land where you were in oppression. I heard you crying for help. I came to get you and I brought you out on eagle's wings. And now he says, now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure This is the context within which I want to look at the Ten Commandments. God is a loving Father. God is a loving Father. And for some of you, that may be a challenge in the room this morning. Because some of you maybe have grown up with lousy fathers. Fathers that have hurt you, have abused you, have done things to you that are unspeakable things that no father should do. And so you struggle to look at God as a loving Father. Because what does that look like? I pray this morning, I can't do that work, but I pray that the Holy Spirit will break through and that he will soften your heart and that you will see the tenderness of God and the love of God. Now, if you are a believer this morning in Jesus, the Ten Commandments should be very important to you. They should be. The Ten Commandments should be important to you. They should mean something. They should hold some weight for you. If you are not a believer in Jesus, if you're just here exploring who Jesus is, then for you, the Ten Commandments probably don't mean a whole lot. Now, it's interesting to me because I think a lot of the Ten will help you in life. If you follow those Ten, they're going to help you. Specifically, the last five, I would say. If you look at the last five, they'll help you. They'll make life better for you. But you're going to struggle with the first four if you're not a follower of Jesus. So... I just, I would encourage you, invite you to listen in, but mainly my thoughts this morning are going to be for those that uh, have put their faith in Jesus and have been adopted into the family of God. So I want to go back a second because there's a term here in this passage that I want to look at. It's right in the middle there of this, this, um, this passage. It says, now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special people. Here's where we get hung up. Often, when we look at the Ten Commandments, what we think, well, we got to obey. For, in order for God to love me, I have to obey God. Right? We start to think that. For, in order for God to love me, for be, to be acceptable to him, I have to obey. And what I would say to you, and I would challenge you on this, is I don't think the nation of Israel was obeying God when they were in slavery in Egypt. It wasn't that their outstanding behavior, God looked at them and said, well, I'm going to call them. Those, wow. Those people are shiny and clean. Look at them. They do everything. I didn't even tell them yet what to do and they're still doing it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go rescue them. That's not how it works. God went in into the mess. He rescued them. And he says, if you obey me. And what he's really saying here, what I, what I think he's really saying is, if you trust me. So take the word obey and just replace it with trust. I'm not telling you to change the word of God, but it will, I'm trying to help your thinking here on this. 
if you will trust me. Because what do we do when we trust someone? If you trust your parents, it is likely that you will obey them. If you trust that the things they're telling you are going to benefit your life, they're going to make your life better, you typically obey and you obey without conflict. Without contradiction, you're not pushing back against it because you believe that it's going to help you. I think that's what God's getting at. He's saying, listen, if you trust me, trust me on this. I created you. I designed you. I made you. I know what's good for you. Trust me. Because if you obey, life will go well. If you don't, you're going to walk away from me and it's going to cause pain and heartache. Not only in your own lives, but in the lives of others. I'll share, you, I'll share for you a story about this. Um, when I was a kid, I was about, when I was about eight or nine years old, maybe even ten, I loved to collect baseball cards. For some reason, I, I just got hooked on collecting baseball cards. So any time that I would get an allowance or any kind of money, maybe I'd find money on the ground, I was quick to go to the store to buy baseball cards. Now, back in that day, i got to help you out. Some of you kids that collect baseball cards today, uh, you know that they cost a lot of money. You go to Walmart, try to buy a pack of cards. They're like $5 now. Well, back when I was collecting, a pack of tops cost a dollar, and you got a pack of, or a, a piece of gum in that pack. Now, if you drop the gum on the ground, it broke into 10 different pieces. <laughs> but I still chewed it. It wasn't good, but I still chewed it because I paid for it. So I would collect baseball cards, and we lived, when, when I was growing up, we lived right in the center, center city, New Holland, uh, 266 East Main Street, right next down to the, the United Methodist Church. Well, right across the street, right across Diller Avenue, there was a, a Getty Mart. I think it's an Exxon now, but back then it was a Getty Mart, and they had the baseball cards that I wanted. Well, my parents deemed it that I should not, thou shalt not cross Diller Avenue without your parents. And I didn't understand. And here's what I thought. I thought my parents were holding back on me because I felt like I was old enough to cross that street on my own. And what they were telling me was, well, you're not really old enough because there's cars that turn at that light and they come around that corner pretty fast. And if you're not paying attention and they hit you, life is not going to only go bad for you. Life will stop for you. So what they were telling me was they were caring for me. They were saying, don't cross that street, but I didn't trust them enough to obey them because I thought that they were holding back on me. And so I crossed that street. I bought those cards and like parents always do, they found out and I got in trouble. I think they took the cards from me, but there's also another caveat to this. I thought in some way, it's interesting, but I thought in some way that those cards were going to enrich my life. I thought in some way that those cards were going to do something for me. They were going to fulfill something in me. And this often happens in life when we disobey God, when we doubt him. We think there's something out there that if I just had that, my life would be better. And what my parents knew was you can wait a week or a day or two days or however long till we go get those cards because those cards are going to be there next week or the week after. And they're also not going to bring into your life something that you need. They're not going to fulfill something for you. But you think about what God has commanded us. It's always, we always want to push back against it. I think of, I think of, and I'm getting off my notes here, but I'll share it with you anyway. I think of Adam and Eve in the garden. 
And no, there's no better example, I, I think, in Scripture than Adam and Eve. For those of you who know the story, but when God put the tree in the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, why was Eve tempted to take the fruit? Well, Satan tempted her. Satan came along and challenged her. But what Satan did basically was say, you're going to get something more. You're going you're to have the knowledge that God has if you take that fruit. And so what Eve did was she didn't trust that God was being straight with her, that God was telling her the truth, that she felt like God was holding out. So what she did was she took that fruit because she felt like, oh, if I take this fruit, something, I'm going to have something fulfilled. And what she didn't realize Well, what was on the other side of that fruit was she was breaking a commandment that God had put in place to protect her. It was very loving for God to say, don't take that fruit, because the result of taking the fruit end up in separation from God. So something that we need to think about as we look at the whole of the Ten Commandments. Now, I wanted to make for you a list here as I was talking about parenting, because uh, I I put some up here uh, that my kids struggle with, and I thought we could have some fun with this. So... I put some up here that my kids struggle with and they doubt me on this. And I think that we can all relate to this. So thou shalt not eat candy for breakfast. Anytime that we have candy in our house, oftentimes what happens is (laughs) my kids inevitably will come down and they will get the candy out and they they will want it for breakfast. Josiah, my three-year-old this morning asked me, dad, can I have a piece of candy for breakfast? Now, is candy really going to hurt them? No. But if they get into a habit of eating candy for breakfast, I know that it's not going to sustain them for the day. It's going to give them maybe 10, 15 minutes of energy, but it's not going to carry them through. Their teeth are going to rot, and I'm going to have to pay for the dentist bill. So there are good reasons to tell them not to eat candy for breakfast. The second one, thou shalt not kick, punch, or bite thine brother. That one happens a lot in our house. Um, And there's no good things that come from biting. Uh, or kicking or punching. So that one's kind of self-explanatory. The next one, thou shalt not run with scissors. I, I don't know why they think it's a good idea to run with sharp objects. Like that it's somehow liberating to run with a sharp object in your hand. But I know that if they fall with that sharp object, gouging your eye out will not bring life to you. It will hinder life for you. So that, of course, is a rule in our house. Uh, thou shalt not cut thine own hair. This, I think... My wife is bigger on this one than I am. Uh, I think, well, if they cut their own hair, they're going to have to live with the consequences. But uh, for her, you know, whenever they're doing pictures or something, got to have the hair just right. So that's a rule in our house. And then the last one, this one just came up. Like, it's happened twice in the last week. If any of you were here on, if any of you were here on Wednesday night, nothing like seeing the pastor's kid on top of his van. I, He is so excited to get to clubs, he just climbed up on top of the van. Uh, But I know that the fall off of that van would hurt. So I'm not trying to hinder life. I'm trying to help them. Uh, So now these are funny. We can laugh about these. Uh, But the same thing is true. God puts these boundaries in place because he knows if you commit those, if you you, uh, sin against me and you violate those, is what I was looking for, if you violate one of those rules or those laws... It's going to hurt. You steal from people. It's going to hinder your life. Maybe not at first. Maybe at first you, you gain some stuff, but you're going to lose friends. 
The police will come and lock you up. If you murder someone, that's not a good thing. It's going to cause problems. It's going to cause relational issues, adultery. You go through any one of these. You look at it and you say, what's the result? Adam asked you last week, play the movie forward. Think about what's the result. If I do this, what is the result of this? How's it going to play out? So now I just gave you kind of an overview of of how to look at the Ten Commandments. But now let's pull the magnifying glass out for a minute. Let's look in at number eight and number ten. So number eight, you must not steal. Uh, As I mentioned before, it's interesting that the tenth one, the tenth one about coveting often leads to the eighth one. When we covet something that we don't have, when we want something we don't have, what do we tend to do? Well, some of us have decided we're going to work hard and try to earn it. Others have decided, well, we're just going to take it. All right, so when we allow coveting to grow in our heart, that can be a problem and that can lead to stealing. Uh, there's other things, though. There, when I look at stealing, what happens with stealing so often is there's this idea that uh, I need something. You think about people that have, if any of you have ever walked with somebody that's caught up in drugs and, and has an addiction, what do they do? They think that that drug is going to bring satisfaction to life. They need that next high, that it's going to somehow make their life better. And so they're willing to sacrifice in other areas, like stealing things they don't have, to pay for that addiction. And it's such a vicious cycle, but that's what happens with with, uh, those that are caught up in those addictions. So we can see how that happens. Now, what's interesting about number eight to me, and and as I said, most of the the last five, is that uh, it's universally accepted. I could not find a culture, as I studied for this and got ready, where stealing is acceptable. If any of you know one, I'd love to talk to you after the service. But there is not a culture that I know of known to man where stealing is an acceptable part of the culture. Every culture that I could think of, if you steal from someone and you're caught, it ends up in punishment. And the reason that is, is because even thieves agree with this one. Even people that steal for a living or otherwise... They agree with this one. And you know how I know that is because if you go and steal from a thief, they will be the first one to call the cops. We agree with this one. We don't take things that don't belong to us. This one is also what I would say is a clear violation of what Jesus called the second greatest commandment. So Jesus comes along and he was asked about what the greatest commandment is or how do you summarize the commandments? Because if you go through the Old Testament, there's over 600 laws in the Old Testament. And so they needed kind of the, the, the quick notes or the cliff notes on this. And so Jesus gives it to him and he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. The first four of the Ten Commandments right there. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. For the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two. So what happens when you steal from somebody is you're violating what Jesus called the second greatest commandment. Because you are not loving them as yourself. It is never a loving act to steal from someone. Now you might have some... I talked about drugs. There might be an instance where you need to pour something down the drain or get rid of something for somebody. But I would hope that you have a conversation about that and not just take it away from them, but actually confront it. So anyway, stealing is never a loving act. In the New Testament, this is uh, built on. And actually, Paul takes it a level further than this. 
All right, so we have love your neighbor as yourself. So if I'm stealing, I'm not loving them. Uh, But it actually goes a little bit further. You go into the book of Ephesians, and Paul talks about this. He says, if you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good work, and then give generously to others in need. So now it steps it up a, a step further. It says, stop stealing and start working hard so that you have something to give to those who need it. Who give to those who need it. God created us to be contributors to the world that we live in. The sphere that we walk in. As a, as a husband and a father, God created me to be a contributor in my household. Not a detractor. He created me to be a contributor in the community that I live in. In the church that I am a part of. I'm supposed to be a contributor. I'm not supposed to be a detractor. And so that's what this passage is getting at. Don't take things that don't belong to you, but work hard, earn things, and then give them away. Give generously, care for those in need. And see, when you're a thief, you're thinking only about your own needs. I need that. I want that. They don't deserve that. You walk into Walmart and you see something there, and Walmart's this humongous corporation that has tons of money. Surely they won't miss this. It's being a detractor in society. It's not being a contributor. So be a contributor is what God challenges us to do here. And he expounds on it. Be a contributor. Now, I want, I want to pull this up here. I want to pull all these passages up because there's one, something I want to show you. We'll move into the 10th one now. Because uh, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time on the, the 10th one. So you look at these, and I, I use the old King James because a lot of times we like to go... Uh, back to that for some reasons, how I memorized them. But thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And then you get to the last one. Thou shalt not covet. And I highlighted that one. And there's something that's different about all the first nine that's different about the tenth one. And if you'll notice with me that the 10th one is an inward disposition. It's an inward disposition. The first nine, you can tell if somebody's violating those. If I steal, that can get caught on camera. If I commit adultery, that can be found out. If I murder someone, that can be found out. If I'm working on the Sabbath day, especially in the nation of Israel, that was punishable by death. They could tell if you were out working on a Sabbath day. If I worship Allah rather than Yahweh, you can tell that. And you look through those, you can hear with your ears, number three, if I use the Lord's name in vain. But you look at number 10, it's an inward disposition. So think about it for a second. I see Neil sitting down front here. That's a nice shirt, Neil. I like that shirt. I've been to creation a couple times. Was that 09? Yeah, I don't think I was there in 09. But see, you don't know. Do I want Neil's shirt? Am I coveting right now? Nobody knows, right? Okay. So you don't know if I'm coveting. It's an inward disposition. It's something that's going on in my heart. Now, I want to make a very clear distinction because if you read number number 10 in its entirety, it says you must not covet your neighbor's house. That's east. Easy one to understand. Can't cover your neighbor's wife. That's even easier to understand. Male or female servant, they're employees. 
All right? You can't covet somebody else's employees, their ox or their donkey, their car. All right? You can't, you can't covet their car or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So Neil's shirt belongs to him. I can't covet that. All right? One of the things I want you to notice here, though, is sometimes we can get off the rails with this one. We can take it too far. We can take it too far. What, what God is specifically getting at here is don't desire somebody else's life, their stuff. This does not mean that I cannot aspire to have things or stuff or a different job. All right, when I was 16 years old, I worked at the New Holland Golf Shed uh, at, the par- at the park in New Holland. All right? Just because I started there didn't mean that I had to stay there. I aspired to do other things. Now, I wasn't looking at other people saying, oh, I want their job, but I was aspiring to get a different job. When Aaron and I first got married, when Aaron and I first got married, we were living in a small apartment. Now, I wasn't walking around looking at people's houses saying, oh, I want their house, but I was saying, I'd like a house someday. Or a car, whatever it is. So it's not wrong to aspire to things. Now that's a different, it's a whole different sermon on idolatry when we begin to build up things in our heart that we want more than God. But what I want to get at here is what we're talking about with coveting is specifically comparing yourself to other people. Specifically wanting what other people want. I'll share one of the things that I want right now with you just so we can kind of build on this and understand it. Uh, one of the things I've been looking at is that we have a large family. We have six kids. Our van uh, is what we, it's what we need. We can use it right now. But as our kids are growing, uh, they're getting big for our van. So I started to think, you know, oh, it'd be nice to get something bigger. And there's 12-passenger vans out there that would work. Uh, any of you who drive 12-passenger pa- vans, God bless you. I don't want to be one of those people. And you're thinking, yeah, Chris, well, if you wouldn't have had six kids, you wouldn't be in that situation. I'm, I'm aware of this. But so there's these things out on the market called Suburbans. And I was thinking that it would be nice to have a Suburban. Then I started looking at the price of Suburbans. And I thought, well, maybe the 12-passenger van is more realistic. Uh, but I can still hope and work towards and, and desire that. And, you know, God says you don't have because you don't ask. So maybe I'm asking now. But that's uh, <laughs> uh, it's a joke. Uh, but... The thing is, I don't walk out in the parking lot. I know some of you drive Suburbans, and I don't walk out in the parking lot and look at it and say, oh, man, I really want that Suburban. That's not how it is. So there's a difference between coveting someone's stuff and aspiring for something and working hard, as Paul even talks about, work hard uh, so that you can give generously. So there's a difference there, and I wanted to make sure that we understood that. So the more we compare, the less satisfied we are. The more we compare, the less satisfied we are. The more I look out at what you have and what I don't have, the more my eyes are fixed on others and rather than on Jesus, the, more, the, or the less satisfied I'm going to be. Because I'll constantly be looking at what I don't have rather than what God has given me and blessed me with. And this goes beyond just possessions. See, everything that I have is a gift from God. God says in in James that every good gift is from above. So all the talents that I have, all the abilities that I have, my profession, my family, my possessions, all of those things have been given to me by God. But when I begin to look out at you and what you have and your gifts and your talents and your abilities and say, man, I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I had, it takes the focus off of God and what he's given me and onto you and onto others. And that I begin to become bitter And it doesn't work. 
So I'd ask you this, what do you have? Paul asks it this way, what do you have that you have not been given? Everything that you've been given, everything that you have has been a gift from God. Your abilities, your talents, the roof over your head, the food on your table, all of those things are gifts from God. And so when I covet other people's stuff or what they have, here's what I'm really saying. I want you to hear this. Here's what I'm really saying. I'm not satisfied, God, with what you gave me. I'm not satisfied with what you gave me. When I covet other people's stuff, I'm not satisfied. And maybe it's their job, maybe it's their spouse, maybe it's their retirement plan. And you start to think, if I just had their ability, if I just had their job, if I just had their wife, if I just had their husband, if I just had their house, then I would be okay. And God is screaming at you, no, absolutely not. Because I created you. I made you. I designed you. I love you. I am all that you need. I am more than enough for you. But if you would just take your eyes off of what everybody else has and fix it on me, it would change things for you. See, coveting is really a discontentment with what God has provided for you. That's what coveting is. It's a discontentment with what God has provided for you. Even as I was preparing this message, this is something that weird things that pastors do, but I was looking at a message that Pastor Stephen Furtick preached. If you don't know who he is, he's a pastor down in North Carolina, an incredibly gifted man. And he was preaching on the Ten Commandments. So I wanted to see some of the comments that he had to make on coveting. And so I was watching this. And as I was watching it, I was thinking, man, if I had half the ability that Stephen Furtick had, people would really be impacted and they would stay awake during this message. And as I was doing it, I realized, hang on a second. You're preparing a sermon on coveting and you're coveting while you're doing it. So God's teaching everyone in the room. And one of the things that Pastor Stephen points out in his message is that if you get the first nine right, you won't want anybody else's life anyway. If you get the first nine right of those Ten Commandments, nobody else's life is going to look like yours does. And I don't mean that to say, say it piously. But you're going to be in a place with God that you're not going to want anybody else's life. When you are in that place, when you're in a place where God is all that you need, I think of the the 63rd Psalm where David says, Your love, O Lord, is better than life itself. Think about that for a second. Your love, O Lord, is better than life itself. With all that David had, David could look at God and he could say, I don't desire anything other than your love. So if we have the love of God in us and we know that he is there, then we can have contentment. We were created to glorify God. And so when I have him in the right place and rightful place in my heart, everything else will fall into line. So I want to close our time here by looking at a, a guy in the New Testament. His name is Paul. And we'll move through this quickly. Uh, but he has one of the most Uh, misquoted passages in the Bible. And I I guarantee almost every one of you in this room has heard this one. Uh, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You've seen it. If you uh, watch any athletics, all right, you see athletes 
Christian athletes will often wear this. And I laugh at this because uh, it's kind of sad. But what Paul was writing about and what God is saying through Paul here is not that every Christian athlete would win a championship. All right, it's clear. Tim Tebow did not win a championship. That is not what he was talking about here when he talks about, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. All right, we see it on t-shirts and everywhere, but that is not what this verse is about. So I want to look with you at what this verse is about in its context. So how I praise the Lord that you are concerned. He was writing, Paul was writing to a church in Philippi and he's talking to a group of people. And he says, I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. And I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I learned how to be content with whatever I had. I know how to live with almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. What he is saying here is, I can be content no matter what the circumstances are. And what happens to so many of us is we begin to look at God and we begin to look at the circumstances in our life. And if the chips are down, if things are going bad, our relationships are hurting, our job isn't going well, whatever the struggle is, and we start to think God isn't for me. He doesn't love me. He's left me. He's abandoned me, whatever it is. But what Paul is saying is I've learned to be content no matter what the circumstances are. So circumstances should not be the measure of God's love for you. And I want to prove it to you because the context with which in Paul writes this is staggering. If you want to study it sometime, you can. We don't have the time to go through the passage, but Acts chapter 16, I'll lay it out for you what happens. Paul is in Philippi. He's doing ministry with a a friend named Silas and Luke is with him. And Luke records this whole event in Acts chapter 16. And they come into Philippi and they hear about this woman named Lydia. And they go to Lydia and they preach the gospel. And she was a God-fearing woman who hadn't heard about Jesus. She puts her faith in Jesus. And what most of us miss about Lydia is Lydia was a dealer in the the cloth, in the purple cloth. She was a business owner. She was a wealthy business owner. And what she does is she insists, Paul, while you're here in Philippi, you're going to come and stay with me. So Paul and Silas and Luke, they go and stay with Lydia during their time while they're there. And How do you think it would go? I have spent time with those that are well off. And any time that I'm a guest in their home, if they are loving, caring people, which every person's home that I've been in uh, typically are, they give you things. Can I get you something? What food do you need? What, What else do you need? So Lydia is caring for Paul and Paul is living like a king in this moment. All right. He's sitting with all that he has and So he's out one day, he and Silas, they're out doing ministry. And there's this little slave girl that comes along and she does not like them for some reason. Well, the reason is that she's possessed. She's possessed by a demon and she starts calling out to Paul and Silas saying, these are, these men are the servants of the most high God. Now, I don't know about you, but I would kind of like to have somebody walk around behind me saying, hey, Chris is a servant of the most high God. It would be reassuring to me. But clearly to Paul, it was not. And it became a frustration. So he cast the demon out. Well, this is a problem because her, this demon was giving her the ability to tell the future. And she was a slave and her slave owners used her and profited off of her and her fortune telling ability. So when she lost that ability, the slave owners became angry. They raised up the city against Paul and Silas. They had Paul and Silas beaten, stripped naked, 
and thrown in jail. Now, if that were you, just think about that for a second. You're out preaching the gospel of Jesus. You're doing what Jesus has told you to do. You're living with Lydia in this mansion of a home. All your needs are taken care of. She's taking care of you. Everything is everything you could possibly want. And then you end up in this place. Stripped naked, beaten, embarrassed, and thrown into a cell. And what do Paul and Silas do in that cell? They don't lick their wounds. They're not sitting there crying. They're not, none of that. What the scripture tells us they do is that they are sitting there at midnight singing, it is well with my soul. Actually, that hymn wasn't out yet, but (laughs) they were singing and praising God. They were singing and praising God and the other cellmates and the jailer were hearing it and the jailer comes to know Christ Now, when Paul says, I know what it is to have a lot and I know what it is to have nothing. Think about that scene in Acts chapter 16. He went from having a lot in Lydia's house to having nothing and being thrown into a jail naked. So he knows what it is to be content. And I think that Paul echoes with David, your love, O Lord, is better than life. As long as I have you, God, I need nothing else. So, I want to give you just something practical here to walk away with, and then we'll be done. How do we kill comparison? Well, we kill comparison by cultivating gratitude. This is what it is. This is how we do it. We begin to look at, God, what have you given me? Do I have food on the table? Do I have breath in my lungs? Do I have a roof over my head? Have I been redeemed by the blood of Jesus? Have my sins been forgiven? Then praise God for what he's given you. Recognize what he's blessed you with. With me, I think about why was I born in the United States? Out of all the places that I could live, why, would I was, born, why was I born in the United States? When you think about for a second that one out of nine people in the world are malnourished. One out of nine don't get a regular meal. Or they wonder where their next meal is coming from. I don't ever think that. I don't ever think that God has provided me with so much. He's blessed me with so much. Why was I given access to health care, clean water, an education, the ability to go to school and think about or pick a career? So in those moments when you begin to think, I wish I had something else or I wish I had their ability, you begin to covet things. Start to think about, well, what has God given me? And we'll close with this, this passage. If you want to turn with me uh, in your Bibles, I wanted you to look this up yourself so that you can take this with you. Um, Psalm 100. And if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the pews. It's on page 500. If you don't own one, a Bible, you may have that one. You may take the one in the pew. Uh, that's a gift from us to you. So Psalm 500. Or 100, sorry, page 500, Psalm 100. It would help if I was turning there too, I guess. So, here we go. Shout with joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Verse four is the one I want you to catch. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. 
Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. So I would ask you this, as you go to God in prayer, what is the posture in which you go to him? Do you go to him saying, God, I just need this right now, or God, this is, this is on my heart? And we can give those burdens, certainly. We can cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. But what this passage tells us is when I walk in to the gates, when I enter into his presence like that in prayer, enter into his courts with thanksgiving, I should come first praising him. I should come first thanking him for what, the, what he has given me, what he has blessed me with. And as we do that, as we do that, you look at verse 5, for the Lord is good. As I said in the beginning, God is a good father. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. The posture of our heart should be one of thanksgiving. As we enter into that season here in the United States, our posture should be one of thanksgiving to God. Last verse. Oh, I think I went backwards. Oh, we missed that. Oh, there it is. All right. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. We often ask the question, what is God's will for us? What is God's will for me? Well, there it is. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, we have much to be thankful for. Our God is a loving Heavenly Father. He has rescued us from our sin. He has accomplished what we could not accomplish. So my challenge for us as we go today from this place is that we would worship him, that we would be thankful for what he's given us. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus together, collectively, coveting the desire for things that aren't ours will fade far into the distance because we will be so fixed on his love, his glory, his honor, and his name, and not our own. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that I can call you Father. I thank you that you have forgiven me of all my sin, and you've done that through your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, forgive us. Even this week, as I was thinking about the gifts that Stephen Furtick has, Lord, you gifted him for a reason. And you put him in that place and you called him to do something that you didn't call me to do. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would get out of that rat race of of chasing things that aren't ours and all that kind of stuff. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize your love and draw us close in Jesus' name. Amen.